You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving here as pastor at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad that you're here joining with us. I see we have a lot of guests uh, in the room. I want to extend a special welcome to you. Glad you're here. Also, if you are joining us online, we're very glad that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning as we continue in our series that we're entitling The Way of Jesus, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. To get this sermon started, I want to start it a little bit differently. I want to start by asking you a question. I want to ask you if you have a notepad with you to write the, the answer to this question down, or maybe you can pull out your phone and type up a little note there. I'd love to, for, to ask you the question, who is someone in your life that you find easy to talk to? Who is someone in your life that you find easy to talk to? Who is someone that when you want to share something with someone, who do you most naturally go to? In case you need a minute or two to think about that and write that down, feel free to do that. Just so you know, in this sermon series, Jesus is instructing us, instructing us on how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. How do we conduct ourselves? He's been dealing with especially the topic of righteousness. Not only what does righteousness look like, but how do we practice our righteousness as we talked about last week? Excuse me. <clears throat> The person's name that you are writing about, or the person's name that you wrote, I want you to think about that person's character, that person's disposition towards you. My guess is that they are someone that you know is for your good, someone that you know that you can trust. It's my belief that you have that comfort level with that person whose name that you wrote down because of what you know to be true about their character, what their disposition, once again, is towards you, that you know that they are for your good. And that it's even more about that than it is their relationship status with you. Perhaps maybe you put down a sibling or a member of, of your family or whoever you put down. It's the fact of who they are more so than their relationship status, so to speak, with you that caused you to write that person's name down. There's a lot of verses that we'll cover today in Matthew chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 7. There's too many topics in this particular passage or these passages to get into all of them, so I want to try to focus on one specific theme today. The scriptures that we're going through are basically three different passages that we're putting together because they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about prayer, but I want us, even as we move through these passages about prayer, to try to pull out one theme that's very common in all of the passages, that kind of undergirds all of the passages. And we'll talk about that as we seek to understand an appropriate posture for us to have as we pray. I'll start reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. I'll read through the passage, and then we'll break it up, and I'll give you three points that we draw from this passage that I believe will help us to pray as Jesus is calling us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street, cor street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father who knows what you need before you ask him. For your, sorry, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jump down to Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, a lot of topics, a lot of things going on in these verses. I don't have time to get into all of them. But there's one thing that I believe is crucial to everything that Jesus says in these verses, and that's the fact that our God in heaven is our Father. He is our Father. In these verses, Jesus uses the term Father six times. In these verses about prayer. He refers to how fathers treat their kids on at least two occasions when he doesn't use the word Father. In the beginning of what is most likely the most famous prayer in the history of our world, he begins it by saying, our Father. I know that there are some of us, potentially some in this room, potentially some that are joining us online, that because of the nature of your relationship with your Father, you just realize that this might be a potentially tough sermon for you to listen to. Some may even be tempted to tune out a pastor that talks about God being a father because in, in those sermons, it begins to cause you to feel maybe pain or hurt or disappointment or anger or sadness associated with your relationship with your earthly father. It just feels too difficult to spend this time thinking about a father. If that's you, I want to plead with you and encourage you to not check out, to not tune me out during this sermon. I believe it's an important part even of your healing as a, as a person and as for your personal prospering spiritually as a follower of God to begin to be able to see God rightly as a loving and kind and near father that will never do you wrong. Today, I want to make three points about God being our father based on what we see from him in these passages. I don't plan on being up before you long today. It's my prayer that God would use these three points to grow us specifically in our posture towards him as we spend time in prayer, as we understand what it means that he is our heavenly father. Point number one, he is our father. He is our Father, many of us are so familiar with this that it sounds kind of basic. This is something that we've heard so many times that maybe we don't even tend to think about the meaning of it, how impactful that actually is in our lives and specifically in our prayer lives. This is a fundamental Christian doctrine for our belief in God in general, and it's a very important one as we consider praying to our God. We see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Here in verse 9, as Jesus is beginning this model prayer for us, he begins not by asking for something. He begins not by praising God. He begins not by thanking God for something that God has already done. No, he, he begins not by doing any of those things. He begins by acknowledging the type of relationship that we have with God. He's reminding us of the posture that we have before God as we come to God in prayer. We go as a child to their loving father. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I'm an adult now. I've learned to depend on myself, which is what we're trained to do. We're trained to grow and become independent. But if we seek to apply that growth and independence to all aspects of our spiritual life, we run into trouble. And I would say Jesus would even say we need to turn or we need to repent from applying that specifically to our prayer lives. Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. It's just 12 chapters later. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, children have something to teach us about life in the kingdom of God. Specifically for our purposes today, children have something to teach us about prayer, about our posture towards God, about how we seek God, about how we approach God. I know that as Christians, we talk a lot about growth and maturity and putting away childish things in our past. But I wonder if you have a theology of what I call holy childishness. I wonder if you have a theology of childishness. I wonder if you know that to be great in the kingdom of God is to become like a child again, to rely on God the way a child relies on a loving parent. That to be great in the kingdom of God is having an unrelenting faith that your father in heaven can do anything. That to be great in the kingdom of God is to bring your request to God instinctively. That is to realize that we are constantly in need of him, that you are in need of him on your good days and on your bad days, to remember that he is your provider. I wonder if that's in your functional theology about how you relate to God, that I need to begin to look more and more like a child. This is important because one of the things that we gather from the Lord's prayer, as we see him begin this prayer by focusing on God being our father, one of the things that should stand out to us is that he's saying that we are to pray with the posture of a child. That's different from a lot of the other things in the Lord's prayer because oftentimes in the Lord's prayer, he's telling us what we ought to pray for. Here, he's not saying what we ought to pray for or what we ought to say specifically when we pray, but he's saying, hey, you should approach him as a child approaches a father. He begins the Lord's Prayer with a truth that should undergird everything else, that, or at least how we understand everything else in the Lord's Prayer. This is the foundation for the prayer. Then as he goes on and talks about us praying for our daily bread, you do that as a child prays or talks to his or her father. The point in beginning the prayer this way is not just giving us one aspect of prayer, but it's saying, no, this is the posture that all of your prayer should have. Every time you go to God, you go to God as a child praying to our father. This is a central truth that is necessary for us to understand if we are to pray as Jesus is calling us to pray as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He is your father. 
That's point number one. We'll draw our second point from reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Point number two, he is a Father who knows. He is a Father who knows. So at this time, many of the others who, who worshiped false gods at this time, the way that they, the Gentiles, as Jesus refers to them, the way that they prayed or the way that they sought to worship their gods would be, they felt they had to use these extravagant prayers or they felt they had to do these things that are very extravagant. Maybe you remember this when Elijah was talking to the prophets of Baal and they were trying to get the prophets to, or they were trying to get their gods to bring fire down from heaven. They start doing all these crazy things like cutting themselves and, and limping around as they're trying to get their false gods to respond to them. It's as if the functional belief that they had was that their gods were pretty busy. Right? They're, running the whole, they're running the earth or maybe running the whole universe. And so if you're going to get their attention, as other people are trying to get their attention, you're going to have to show out a little bit. You're going to have to do something pretty extravagant. Jesus says that they were heaping up these empty phrases going on and on and on again, trying to get their God's attention. Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles who are heaping up these empty phrases because your Father in heaven already knows what you need. What's his point? You don't have to do these extravagant things to get God's attention because you're his child and he already knows you. He's already near. In fact, he's so near and he knows you so well that he already knows what you're going to pray for. He's not this distant God that you may have in your mind that it's like, okay, well, maybe God will hear me or maybe God will listen to me if I do enough and prove to him how serious I am. He's like, no, no, no. He's already near, he's already close. He's so familiar with you that he already knows what you're going to ask him for. There are actually some church traditions today that believe that in order to receive the Holy Spirit, you have to pray to God and continue to say the same thing repetitively over and over and over again and wait for God to give you his spirit. I find it to be very similar to what God is call, or Jesus is calling us away from in this passage. We're not, we're not heaping up empty phrases. This is a real relationship between us and a God who knows us so deeply that he knows every need that we have even before we ask. And maybe you're like me and your thought is, well, if he already knows everything that I need before I ask, why even go to ask him, Right? Jesus is using this as a reason to ask. My initial thought reading this is, okay, well, if he already knows, why am I going to ask him? But the difference that he's setting up between his followers and the followers and the Gentiles that are worshiping these gods and heaping up these empty phrases is that they're trying to show off to get his attention and they're trying to do all these things to get his attention. But he's saying, no, you have it way better. You can go to him because you already have his attention. You go to him from a place of love, not a place of insecurity where you're trying to hopefully maybe he'll see you, maybe he'll be able to relate to you, maybe he'll respond to you, maybe he'll answer your prayers if you do enough. He's saying, no, you have it way better than them. You go to him knowing that you already have his attention. He knows every need that you already have. This is one of the things that blew my mind as a child learning about God. Blew my mind. You mean to tell me, anytime I go to God, he hears me and notices me. 
And he hears every other, every other child of his, no matter where they are, whether they're in the room with me or somewhere halfway across the world, he hears all of us all the time. Yes. Yes. This is what Jesus is saying. Go to him because you know that he hears you. That's how present, that's how near, that's how close he is, that he not only hears you, but he already knows everything about you. Don't use it as a reason to not go to him. See him as beautiful and as glorious as he is and that he knows everything about you and allow that to draw you into joyful communion with God through prayer. As I was thinking about how we might have thoughts of, well, if he knows everything that I need, why go and ask? I was reminded of my children. Every morning, if we have milk and cereal in our house, I make milk and cereal for my boys. They love it. I love it. It's great. Love cereal. They know that I know that they want cereal. It's literally every single morning. If we have it, they're asking for it every single morning. They never hesitate to ask me for it. They know that I know this, but they do not hesitate. This is how children function. This is how children work. If I'm doing something else, maybe before I make them a bowl of cereal, they're they're saying, Dad, I want some cereal. Because children don't care if if you know. They don't care if they know that you know what the need is. They continue to come to you with their request. They continue to ask. This is who Jesus is calling us to be. This is the posture Jesus is calling us to have as children of God. Our God knows us so much and so well that, that that doesn't prevent us from going to him in prayer. That leads us, that lets us know we're welcome to come to him, that he beckons us to come, to seek him, to cry out to him because he is a father that loves his children and knows us personally and deeply. Point number one is he is your father. Point number two is he is a father who knows And we'll get our next point from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, which read, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Point number three, he loves to bless you. He loves to bless you. In the beginning of that passage I just read, he says, hey, go to your father in prayer. Ask him for blessings. He's going to give you blessings. He's saying, seek him. And you will find him knock and he'll open himself to you. He says to his audience there, if you, know, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, as sinful and evil as you are, how much more would our Father in heaven love to give good things to those who love him and those who ask him? It's like Jesus saying, come on now, let's just use common sense here. He's the greatest father to ever be a father. He has no evil or sin in him at all. There's never been a father that loves blessing his children more than God, our heavenly father. He's saying, so go to him and ask. He's saying, so seek him. He's saying, so knock and it will be opened to you. He's saying, go and ask him. He's promising that he answers the prayers of his children. 
And again, if you're like me, you might be thinking, well, what about the time that I asked him to bless me and he didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted him to? Well, what about the time that I cried out to him and I, didn't, I don't think he answered my prayer? What about that? And we have to be honest and say that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want him to, right? Let's look back at verse 9 again, verse 9 and 10. Where he says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I think oftentimes we feel like we asked God for bread and he gave us a stone. I think oftentimes we feel like we asked God for fish and he gave us a serpent. We got to be able to be honest about our disappointments and our hurts regarding prayer. Some of us have allowed the disappointment to hinder our prayer lives, and that makes sense. And it's easy to allow that to happen. We get our hopes up and we ask God to give us different things and we haven't received what we desire for God to give us. This is difficult. This is painful oftentimes. This is disappointing. What do we do with this? What do we do with this disappointment that we feel? And I don't have all the answers, but there are two specific things that I think are important for us to remember regarding specifically our prayer lives in the middle of our disappointment. The first thing is just because is remember that just because God didn't give us what we wanted doesn't mean he still doesn't love to bless us. There's not a single parent in here that has given their child absolutely everything that their child is wanted but has wanted, but that doesn't mean that they don't love to, we don't love to bless our children. That doesn't mean that we don't desire to bless our children just because there are times for reasons that our children cannot understand that we have to say, I'm not going to give you that specific thing that you're asking for right now. And we must also remember, even in our disappointment that sometimes we don't have answers for, we must also remember that children continue to ask for things even if and when their parents don't always give them exactly what they want. This is what children do. They continue to ask. They continue to seek. They continue to knock. They've experienced disappointment before, but there's a relentlessness in the requesting of a child. I know some parents in here that can say amen to that. There's a relentlessness. There's a refusal to stop. There's an ongoing beckoning and crying out and asking over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of heaven, look at a child. If we want to know what it looks like to practice prayer right, and I want to be very clear about this because sometimes I think we believe there's a certain amount of praying that we need to do, right? For most of us who are followers of Jesus in here, if I asked you, do you feel like you're praying enough? You'd probably say no for most of us. Yet the Bible never gives us a specific amount of times per day or how long a period of time we're supposed to be praying. But what the Bible does give us very specifically is the posture that we're supposed to have as we pray. So as we think about growing as, as, as followers of Jesus who pray to God as God calls us to, I believe sometimes we should think less about exactly how often we pray and more about what is our posture towards God as we pray. How do I approach God? How do I see God as I pray? And I believe the more that we begin to see him, the way he has revealed himself in his word, the more we begin to approach him as a child approaches a loving parent, we'll see ourselves begin to pray more and more. But the focus biblically is more about the posture than the amount of time that we spend praying. Do we approach him as a child? 
I said earlier, after I asked you to, or as, around the time when I was asking you to write the name of someone that you find it easy to talk to, that you're comfortable going to talk to, I said that I don't believe the reason you wrote that person's name down is necessarily because of the, the, the relationship status you have with them, but rather because of what you know to be true about them. Rather because of what you know, who you know they are, what you know their disposition towards you to be. Because I believe a lot of us, we know, we could, we could tell you, we have, we have mentally assented to the fact that God is our Father. But I think we oftentimes don't consider his character as we are moving towards him in prayer. That we must know that he's a father, but we also must know that he's a father that loves to bless his children. A father who loves to answer prayer and bless us. I'm reminded of Adam and Eve in the garden that even after they sinned, our God blessed them by making clothes for them to cover them up, cover up their nakedness and their shame. I'm reminded in the same book of the Bible later in Genesis when Joseph, even though he was sold into slavery by his brothers, God blessed him and he ended up rising to the second highest position in the land as God blessed him. I'm reminded of the people of God still there in Egypt as they were being oppressed and God comes in and through his power miraculously blesses them by freeing them from the power of Egypt and defeating the Egyptian army for them. I'm reminded that after they got into the promised land, there were more nations and more kingdoms that threatened to oppress them and keep them from being able to worship the true God. And God gave them victory after victory after victory, even in the promised land. I'm reminded that when they were in the promised land, they still didn't follow God. And so they were exiled out of their land. But even when they were exiled, God blessed them and promised them that he was going to bring them back and use them to bring salvation to the world. And I'm reminded that even after he brought them back, they still didn't follow him. And he continued to bless them and promise them that a Messiah would come. And I'm reminded that that Messiah came to a people that didn't love him, that didn't like him, that should have known him, should have recognized him, should have worshipped him. But he continued to bless them and died for the very enemies that were crucifying him. I'm reminded that because of his death and resurrection, that because he died on the cross and was raised from the grave, he blessed us by freeing us from the power of sin, freeing us from the penalty of sin. And I'm reminded that one day, bless the Lord, he's going to come back and he's going to free us from the presence of sin forever. I'm reminded that we serve a God who loves to bless us. Genesis to Revelation, he is blessing a people that don't follow him, that don't want him, that don't desire him. This is who he is. You have never met anybody that loves to bless their children more than God loves to bless you if you are in Christ. This is who our God is. We must see him this way, that we are his children. He is our father that loves to bless us. Search through the scriptures and you'll see him page after page blessing his people. Regardless of how they are responding to him, he's responding to them in the same way. Categorically speaking, he is blessing them over and over and over again. This is who our God is. Please don't let the fact that he didn't answer some of your prayers the way that you wanted him to, to cause you to believe that he doesn't love to bless you. Sometimes we let some specific and acute things that we've asked God for that he didn't answer the way that we wanted him to, to cause us to doubt that he is who he says he is. When we have so much evidence throughout the scriptures, throughout history, that he blesses his people and he loves to do it. He is a good father. His character is good. His disposition towards you is that of a father who loves to bless you and love you. And I believe if we truly understood the character of God 
and his disposition towards us. That the next time someone asks you who was someone in your life that you find easy to talk to, that one of your first thoughts will be God. That one of your first thoughts will be, God is easy for me to talk to. I'm comfortable talking to God because I know that he is good. I know that he is good to me. I know what his disposition is towards me. Family, we have a good father. Let us continue to go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you today even for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that you are a God that loves for us to come to you, that you are a father that that desires to be with us, that desires to know us and be known by us. We thank you that you are a father that loves the fact that we are yours and you are ours. We thank you that we have the best of fathers. Would you help us to see you that way? Would you help us to see you as a good father who knows us and who loves to bless us? Would you give us childlike faith, an unrelenting faith that continues to knock, that continues to seek, that just continues to ask no matter what, even through disappointments, even through pain, even through questions, that we would be a people that continue to come to you in prayer because we're your children and you're our Father who loves us. And we ask all this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.